You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. If you will uh, begin with me in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, and we'll read the first 11 verses this morning. And we'll pray and we'll get to work. It says this, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. We know that there is bad news. We look all around at the world, and we see the brokenness. We see the pain. We see the sickness. We see the uh, harming others and the being harmed on the flip side of that. We see all of that as we we look around. And, uh, And we know that this world is not as it should be. That's the bad news. And yet, the very word gospel means good news. Uh, it's, the, it's the good news that Jesus has come, that he has done something to reconcile us to you and to one another and to make everything sad untrue ultimately. So we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you have revealed yourself uh, in this specific way to us so that we can know you, and so that we can walk with you and see our joy increased and so that you might be glorified more in our lives. Lord, would you do that this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit? We ask this of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, anybody ever seen one of these? Um, We're not there yet. We're close. Uh, We have a 10-month-old, and uh, my mom actually got her a piggy bank uh, yesterday, has little coins. I tried to get her to stick the coins into the bank, and she was just not having it. She'd rather eat the coins. That's kind of where she is now. And so we're probably a few months from purchasing a toy that looks like this. But most of you, when you were a kid, you had a toy like this. Or maybe if you have kids a little older than mine, uh, you have a toy like this for your child. What's, what's the purpose of a toy like this? It's to teach a kid shapes, right? Very simply put, that the goal is to, ch- to teach shape and size recognition. That's what we're going after, literally to teach them that a square peg does not fit into a round hole. That's what you're going after as a parent when you purchase a toy like this for your kid. And in fact, the more you try to force a square peg into a round hole, the more in danger you are of destroying the actual toy itself, right? 
Welcome to Paul's argument this morning. If the gospel is a round hole reality, which, which is what I'm arguing for this morning, the church in Corinth is living a square peg life. It just doesn't fit. Something doesn't add up. And Paul's going to make that clear by way of addressing um, the issue of Corinthians uh, taking one another to court, uh, those within the church, brother against brother. But what I want to argue this morning is that's just a symptom of something um, greater below the surface that's going on in the church in Corinth and something that is very applicable for us today. So think of it this way. Uh, if you own a vehicle, you might have seen something like this before. It's called a check engine light. I hate this guy. I hate when he rears his ugly head. Um, mine's on right now as we speak, actually, and I'm going to have to do something about that. Um, check engine lights are the bane of my existence, probably yours too, certainly a product of the fall. No one would argue with that, part of the bad news. Um, and, and as many of you know, when a check engine light comes on, that tiny little light typically doesn't reflect a tiny little problem, right? Usually, when, when that tiny little light comes on, it points to a not-so-tiny problem that's going to cost you a not-so-tiny amount of money, to get it fixed. This lawsuit issue that we're going to look at this morning is the check engine light in the church in Corinth. But what I want to do is I want to get up under the hood, so to speak, if that makes sense. Let me give you another analogy that may help. Um, think of an iceberg. Now, I, I moved from, uh, from the city of Orlando where icebergs are kind of like unicorns that maybe they exist, maybe they don't. We're not we're not really sure. We can't even keep the ice in our freezer frozen down there in hot central Florida. And so... Um, it, there, there's debate on whether these things actually exist. We've seen them in pictures, but according to credible sources, they, they do exist. Icebergs are real, and they're quite dangerous. And, and the crazy thing is you only get a glimpse of one-tenth of an iceberg above the surface of the water, which means that 90% lies below the surface invisible to the human eye. It's where you get the phrase tip of the iceberg. That's literally where that comes from, that that jagged, hidden rock of frozen water under the surface has the capability of tearing into the hull of a ship and destroying it. Point in case, the Titanic, right? This lawsuit issue that we're going to look at in this morning's text is the tip of the iceberg. It's the check engine light. But there's something going on under the hood that's, that's more dangerous. There's something below the surface of the water lurking um, that is, is in danger of tearing a hole in the fabric of the church you might say. And so we want to get to that. But first, let's talk a little bit about the situation itself. If you look at verse 1, Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So the situation is this. There are some who are causing grievances within the church against others in the church. And according to verse 7, those grievances involve wronging or defrauding. So we're talking about civil issues amongst Christians. And Paul has a problem with both those who are doing the defrauding, on the one hand, the victimizers, but he also strangely has a problem with the victims, the ones who have been victimized, defrauded, wronged, treated unjustly because they're taking the victimizers to open court. Look at verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Looking back to last week, it's, it's pretty amazing when you think about it that the issue of incest, right? Guys sleeping with a stepmom in chapter 5, that's getting passed over. That's getting swept under the rug. It's actually being championed within the church 
Meanwhile, civil disputes warrant people going to open court. Pretty insane, the, the lack of discernment and wisdom in this church. If the gospel's a round whole reality, I'm going to keep arguing this this morning, the church in Corinth is living a square peg life. It's a square peg move to defraud your brother and sister in Christ. And according to Paul, it's also a square peg move to take your brother and sister in Christ to open court over petty civil disputes, over petty issues. Now, to be very clear, let me throw this out as a disclaimer, Paul is not addressing criminal issues, okay? He's addressing civil issues, civil disputes. In Romans 13, Paul does a great job of talking about the good that the government brings in terms of justice in matters of criminal uh, cases, uh, situations more criminal in nature. But here, we're talking about things in the realm of property uh, issues, labor and wage issues, things of that nature. In cases of abuse, molestation, uh, drunk driving, rape, in those types of cases, if there's a need to appeal to, to a court system in order to keep further harm from happening, to protect people, there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. But Paul's saying here, it doesn't align with the gospel to defraud or to act unjustly toward your brother or sister in Christ, and it doesn't align with the gospel to take your defrauding or your unjust brother or sister in Christ to open court for a civil issue. There are just some things that don't fit some things that don't align with the gospel, and, and Paul is arguing that that is the case. So here's what I want to do. Um, for the next little bit, I want to unpack the square peg life, okay? So I want to take a look at what square peg living looks like, and if we're honest, as you read this, you're going, seriously, what, what does this have to do with me? Like, most of you are, are not coming in going, this is great, like, God is at work, because I was thinking about taking a community group member to court this week over a civil litigation, and so the Holy Spirit knew exactly what I needed this week. And so I showed up for this, and this is fantastic, and I'm going to repent now, and there's not going to be an open court session between me and my brother in Christ. Most of you are not thinking that way. So you look at this, and you go, what does this have to do with me? I mean, I'm not looking to go that route. That's not my issue. How does this apply to my life? Again, the, the lawsuit issue is the check engine light. It's what you see above the water, but there's something that's universally applicable to us that's under the hood, that's under the surface of the water that you can't see. And so I want to take a look at some of these things, um, what I would call gospel inconsistencies that I see in this text, things that look like square pegs that just don't fit into the round hole worldview of Christianity, okay? So let me just run through these one at a time. That's how we're going to take this this morning. Number one. It's inconsistent to wrong others when you've been righted in Christ. Okay, so looking from the vantage point of the victimizer, if you look at verse 7, it says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So there is a sense in which someone is suffering wrong in, this, in the church. Someone is the, the recipient of another's defrauding. That is actually happening, which means that there are victimizers in the church. Absolutely. There's a mistreatment of brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a sinning against one another in the church. If you skip ahead to verse 11, Paul says you were justified. Okay, going back to a couple of weeks ago, that's courtroom language. Paul's saying you've been declared righteous. You've been declared innocent of wrongdoing, not because you are, but because Jesus is for you. That's the gospel. Jesus is the basis of our acquittal. Jesus went on trial for us. He stood in the courtroom that we should have stood in. 
Though he was innocent, he took our guilty verdict upon himself. And we've been justified by way of Jesus's willingness to be treated and wronged unjustly. Paul's saying it's inconsistent to look at the bloody cross of Jesus Christ, to see Jesus unjustly dying for you, and to turn to your brother or sister in Christ and treat them unjustly. There's something terribly inconsistent about that. Think about Zacchaeus, the the frauding, thieving tax collector. We've talked about him before in this series. Had a collision with Jesus, right? And not only did he stop defrauding people, he actually restored to those people he defrauded, defrauded four times the amount that he took from them. Paul's saying, we can't even get to conversations about restoration with you guys in the church in Corinth yet because you haven't even gotten past the issue of still defrauding one another in the church, treating one another unjustly. You still look and think and act like pre-Jesus Zacchaeus would be one way that we might say it. It just doesn't fit. Number two, It's inconsistent to take people to court when Jesus didn't take you to court, but rather stood trial in your place, looking from the side of the victim. Go again to verse 7. It says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? uh, And this is a hard one for us, right? Jesus could have called down a legion of angels to remove him from the cross, but he didn't. He chose to bear your fraud my fraud, your injustice, my injustice, your sin, my sin, so that we might be redeemed. The, the way of the cross says you might have to bear fraud or injustice or sin so that others might be redeemed. Uh, N.T. Wright in his commentary says this. He, he says, Paul's challenge, get it up on the screen for us, hang on. There we go. Paul's challenge to the church might almost have come from Jesus himself. He, after all, told the rich young ruler to give up all his property and follow him. That's from Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Wright goes on to say, Paul declares that it's better to put up with being defrauded in order to follow the Messiah, in order to show the world that there's a different way to be human. Okay? To be very clear, Paul is not saying just let people walk all over you in any and every situation that you can imagine. But what Paul is saying that um, if it means losing in order to display the way of the cross, then lose. Let me ask this question. Are there situations in which you feel slighted by another person, maybe even specifically in the church, that you just need to lose for God's glory? Think about that. Are there situations in which you harbor bitterness that you just refuse to let go of and it's just destroying the witness of the church for those looking in and it's destroying the community on the inside? And maybe the best thing you could possibly do is just lose for the glory of God and for the betterment of the church, to let it go. Number three, we're gonna spend a little bit more time on this one because it just sounds crazy. It's inconsistent to find yourself incapable of handling trivial issues when you're going to judge the world and angels. Look at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? 
Paul says you and I will one day judge the world and angels. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's a part of biblical theology, that there is coming a day when that's going to happen. Let me, let me attempt to make sense of that as best I can. We're not going to go super deep into this, but I want to try to unpack something that I think will be helpful. There's coming a day, I've said this before, ripped it off from Tim Keller, there's coming a day when Jesus will make everything sad untrue. That's a reality. And in order to do so, he must eradicate evil from the world completely. Think about it. Heaven is no heaven at all if it's filled with wickedness, right? Be it men or fallen angels. No one wants to to be a part of a heaven where you have to constantly walk around with one eye open. That's not heaven anymore. And so Revelation 19 paints a picture of of Jesus' return to eradicate evil from the world and make everything sad untrue. Flip there with me for a second because I want to walk us through Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. We're going to spend the next few minutes there. This is one of those times where it's actually appropriate to turn there. It's toward the back of your Bible. It's right near the maps and the glossary and all that stuff, only a few chapters away from the end of everything. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, says this. This is John's vision. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. All right, this is Jesus that's being described here, that Jesus came once and he did not come to judge and make war, but rather to be judged in our place on the cross. But there is coming a day when he will return as a risen, exalted, triumphant king to eradicate evil forever so that heaven is actually heaven. It says, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He wears a crown, he is the king And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Okay, that's to remind us of the cross. That's to remind us of everything that he has done to reconcile us to God and to one another. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, I love this. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. You think they think they're going to lose this battle? You do not wear a white T-shirt to a street fight that you plan on losing, right? The only blood you're going to see on the scene is the blood on Jesus' robe to remind us of his cross on this day. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There you go, tattoo people in the room. I don't think that's written in Sharpie. That is an eternal name of the king. It says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, that there is no respecter of persons. Going back to the story of Passover from last week. Remember we talked about God said, I want you to sacrifice a lamb without blemish and and no one is off the hook here that I'm looking for blood and it's either gonna be the blood of your firstborn child or the blood of the lamb on, on your doorpost. The same is true of this day. There is no respecter of persons when it comes to God coming to eradicate evil, both small and great, both free and slave. Those who do not love and follow and worship Jesus will be a part of this. It says, and I saw the the beast 
and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse, Jesus, and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I heard one pastor at one point say it's reverse Thanksgiving, like birds are eating humans. It's just insane. Like it's, it's going to be a total throwdown in the end that there is coming a day in which the eradication of evil must involve a judgment of the world and of the fallen angels. And Paul says, and this is crazy, like you're not just going to be sitting back with popcorn watching that all go down. I used to think that way. I used to think this is going to be awesome. I get a front row seat to watch watching Satan get destroyed forever. This is going to be sweet. But according to Paul, no, you actually pay, play a part in the judgment in the end, that God is welcoming you somehow into that, that Paul says, you and I one day will judge the world and angels. You and I will participate in Jesus's final eradication of evil. Daniel 7.22 says that a time will come when the saints will possess the kingdom, that language of co-reigning with Christ. And Paul is even more clear in 2 Timothy 2.12 where he says this, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Um, probably the best picture that I can give you would be from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, if you've never read the book or seen the movie, shame on your soul. Um, come find me after the service, um, one, so that I can publicly shame you, and two, so that I can get you a copy of the DVD, at least, if not the book, and uh, we can evangelize you there. But for those who have seen it, uh, the, this particular movie or read the book, you, you know, watch the, the movie yesterday, you know, we all know that Aslan is the true king, right? No one's arguing with that. He is the king of all. He is the king of Narnia. And yet somehow, as this battle ensues between Aslan and his army and the white witch and her army, as, as all evil is eradicated and the white witch is destroyed in the end, uh, at Ker Paraval, the, the castle by the sea, you have Lucy and Edmund and Peter and Susan sitting on the four thrones, somehow co-reigning, and yet we still know in the end that Aslan is the king of all, right? That's the idea, that somehow in the end, you will co-reign with Christ. I don't know how to make sense of that, but it is a, is a glorious truth that we can receive and, and bask in and somehow in the end, you and I will not just kick back with a bucket of popcorn, but we will play a part in that eradication of evil forever. You got that picture in your head? Whether it's the biblical picture of Revelation 19 or just Chronicles of Narnia, you got the picture in your brain right now? Now, in light of that picture, think about how inconsistent and ridiculous it is that we can't handle our own drama in the church. Think about that for a moment that you and I will play a part in pronouncing the final verdict on evil in the end, but we can't handle our own junk in the day-to-day. Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, you guys are so wise. You're so eloquent. We've been talking about it since chapter one, but you can't handle simple civil disputes among yourselves. Wake up, Paul says. Get your head in the game. One of the dumbest statements in, in evangelicalism today is this, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. That's a terrible statement. Not only is it a false dichotomy, it's unbiblical, ultimately. 
that Paul tells us we're to set our minds on things above, and that is what makes us of any earthly good. Think, think about it this way. Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? Um, dwelling on the eternal heavenly reality that every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be present in the new heavens and the new earth would go a long way, would put a huge dent in the problem of racism. Because we don't have an eternal perspective, the here and now is muddy for us, and we have to deal with issues like that. Let me give you another example. Dwelling on the eternal heavenly reality that you don't get to take your stuff with you when you die, nor will it matter because you're going to be rich in Christ, co-reigning with him, would go a long way, would put a huge dent in the problem of materialism, which is a big one for us. Do you see, you see the connect between the eternal heavenly perspective and the reality of the here and now? And the list goes on. We, we could just keep talking about one example after another. Paul's saying, get heavenly minded, get an eternal perspective, and it will change the way you live right here and right now. It will shape your square peg life into a round life that actually matches the gospel. I mean, if that's not true, if the whole idea of being heavenly minded is a problem, we should stop singing when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We should just erase those words. And start singing about things that matter now. If that's not true, we should stop singing, When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great thou art. But there's something about singing words like that that mess up our hearts for the glory of God in the here and now question becomes, in what areas of your life, and this is a question for me too, in what areas of your life might God plant flags of dominion if you'd simply get a better eternal perspective? For those in Corinth, they needed to hear that they would one day play a part in destroying the white witch. They needed to hear that, and thus they could handle petty disputes in the church. What does that look like for you? Number four, it's inconsistent to abandon the perfect justice system of God for the imperfect justice system of the world. Look at verse four. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? The, the Roman judicial system, let me try to paint a picture of this. Um, it was certainly flawed. It was certainly crooked. Judges could be bribed. Witnesses could be bribed. Those with greater wealth and status had a better chance of tipping the scales in their favor. Things could get very vicious, that the goal in the Roman court system was not justice, but rather victory, winning at whatever cost necessary. Think, think smear campaigns. Think political smearing. When you see those commercials around campaign time and they drive you nuts because they have nothing to do with the issues and everything to do with slandering and destroying the other person on the other side of the campaign. That's the Roman judicial system in Paul's day. Paul's saying, shame on you for seeking the help of those who don't know and love God and are driven by a different worldview in an effort to take down one who does love God. What Paul's astonished by is that Christians should understand the idea of justice better than anybody. You and I, if you're a Christian in this room, you should understand the idea of justice better than anyone else in the world. Christians know that, that the human race sits in the cosmic courtroom of God. Christians know that the verdict is guilty, 
Christians know that there's nothing that we can do to to turn that verdict around to a verdict of of innocent in our own power. We cannot reverse the verdict that's been pronounced upon us. Christians know that the punishment based on that guilty verdict is death. And we're not just talking a physical death that we'll all experience if Jesus doesn't return first, but we're talking about a spiritual death that the umbilical cord between us and God has been severed. And that Jesus is the only one who can bring that back together, can mend that umbilical cord. And that if we die a physical death with that spiritual severance in place, that we will experience eternal death at that point. Christians know these things. Christians believe that God is perfectly just. That he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug in an effort to forgive us. Rather, he punishes our sin perfectly and justly in his son, in Jesus that our sin was put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place, that he lived the life that we could never live and he died our death, that God is a perfectly just judge. He always rights wrongs. He always deals with the guilty in perfect justice. It's just a matter of whether his perfect justice is going to be displayed in punishing us or in punishing Jesus for us. Paul's saying, you guys should understand justice better than anyone. Yet you're taking your problems into a flawed court system filled with people who don't understand justice at all, who are making all of their decisions based on a faulty worldview. People who base truth and justice on Greek philosophy and pagan temple worship. Paul's asking, what are you guys, what are you doing? Like This doesn't fit. This is square peg living and the gospel is a round hole worldview. Paul says, you've been given the word of God. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been given the eldership of the church. God has given you everything you need in order to handle matters of injustice within the church. Richard Pratt, in his commentary, says this. He says, because the gospel includes things like unity in Christ and forgiveness, which worldly standards of justice ignore, the secular law of unbelievers is not equipped to adjudicate disputes between Christians. He goes on to say, Unbelieving human law simply does not reflect true wisdom, godliness, or justice. Regarding public courts, it might be said that justice is blind, not because it treats all people equally, but because it cannot see truth. I think the question for us in this, this morning, is this. Do we lean on the wisdom of the world when it comes to the way that we make choices in life, the way that we live our lives? Do we lean on a system that defines truth and success and happiness differently than God? Or do we lean on Jesus and his bride, the church, when it comes to the choices that we make with our lives? Do we allow Jesus to define truth and success and happiness for us? The wisdom of the world is a flawed wisdom. The wisdom of God is perfect. So let me talk for a moment now in light of those inconsistencies about what happens when you and I live square peg lives because the world is undoubtedly watching, right? The world is always watching. Just look at the church in Corinth as an example. You have two ways that we see uh, the world looking in, the unbelieving world watching. Number one, the judge and jury, right? The very people who are involved in the court system of Rome are getting a front row seat to the inconsistency of the church in Corinth in light of what they say that they believe. And so the judge and jury are being affirmed in their own worldview. Their their thought becomes, I must have this thing right because at least I can handle petty disputes with my worldview. These guys can't seem to get it together. And then on the other hand, there's a broader sense in which the world is looking in. So the judgment seat in Roman culture was always in the marketplace. 
There's always in a place of public view for the city to look in on. Passerbys, anyone making their way near the judgment seat in the marketplace could see what was going down. It'd be like that guy who uh, shows up if you're a college student now or showed up if you're out of college and a little older like me. The guy who showed up on your campus, bullhorn or not, and just started saying stupid things in the name of Jesus and Christianity, right? You guys met that guy? And you're looking at him going, can't you just, like, go to the science lab where there's, like, four people or something? Like, why do you really have to be on the quad right now? Or, you know, the, the major intersection on our campus, the two busiest streets, do you really have to go there? The corporate witness of the church is being ruined in this context as people are looking in. Just like the guy sleeping with his stepmom in chapter 5, this is damaging to the church's witness of the gospel. People are looking in and saying, oh, your gospel's not great enough to reconcile petty disputes, but it's great enough to reconcile me to God? Hmm, interesting. Murphy O'Connor in his commentary says this, find this to be very helpful. He says, a united community in which love dominates is the existential affirmation of the truth of the gospel. Let me say that again. A united community in which love dominates is the existential affirmation of the truth of the gospel. He goes on to say, a community which contains within itself the divisions which characterize the world has no power to transform its environment because the contradiction between theory and practice is too evident. The world's looking in, and and they don't need uh, some grand ability to to think well to see it. We, We look like a child's toy. The world looks in and they say, why, why are you trying to fit that square thing through that round thing? That doesn't, that doesn't add up. That doesn't make sense. That looks really uh, frustrating. Looks like you're going to cause a lot of damage. I don't, why would I want to join that? Why would I want to be a part of that? The unbelieving world is saying, you say you believe in a round, whole gospel worldview, but your life is a big, fat square. Clearly, your gospel is powerless. Let me ask a question, and this is for all of us in the room, myself included. If you're a Christian, does your life establish or destroy the credibility of the gospel? All right, think about that for a moment. Does your life establish or destroy the credibility of the gospel? And let me be super clear here. What I'm not asking is, are you perfect? If you're perfect, then you don't need the gospel. If you're perfect, you can go to any other world religion in the world and do better off because every other religion says do good and God will love you. If you're perfect, you just as much destroy the credibility of the gospel as those who can't seem to get their act together. Communicating that you have it all together is just as inconsistent with the gospel as living a recklessly sinful life that in no way communicates that Jesus has taken the throne and is king. You tracking with me there? Let me, let me vision cast for a second and say, that comes to bear in our community groups. So not only is there a sense in which we want to see repentance take place in community groups as people look to Jesus and see him as even more glorious and begin to walk in the light of the truth of who he is and what he's done for them, but we also want to be very intentional not to create a world in which people just sit around with 18 layers like an onion and act like they have it all together because that's just as destructive to the gospel as, as the guy who's living in license every day of the week. It's no more helpful for people to see the beauty of the person and work of Jesus. The question's not, are you perfect? The question is, are you repentant? 
Repentant people make the gospel look gloriously appealing. Why? Because repentant people communicate to an unbelieving world around them that they're not perfect, but they do bend their knee to one who is, namely Jesus, who sits on the throne of their lives. So the question is, is that you? How do you know? That's where verses 9 through 11 are very, very helpful. Look at verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Gordon Fee in his commentary says this about this list. He says, this sin list covers enough ground to make one think Paul is holding this up as a kind of mirror in which they are to see themselves as to whether they need a divine makeover or not. To to those who aren't Christians in the room this morning, let, let let me try to paint a picture here. All right, here's the interesting thing about a mirror. A mirror can show you that you're dirty, but a mirror cannot possibly make you clean right? It'd be the weirdest thing on planet earth if you saw the the dirt on your face in a mirror and took the mirror off the wall and tried to rub your face with it to clean yourself, right? Nobody does that. That's strange. But that's exactly what we do spiritually when we encounter passages like 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10. We look at a list like that and we attempt to use it to make ourselves clean. It can't be done because you will inevitably come face to face with the question, how good is good enough? You'll look in that mirror over and over again and go, am I clean enough now? Am I clean enough in such a way that God will look upon me and love me and see me favorably? Have I gotten there yet? The mirror is not meant to make you clean. The mirror is meant to drive you to the sink. The mirror is meant to drive you to the water. Jesus is the water. Jesus cleanses us from sin and makes us pure before God. If you're not a Christian, I pray that you don't look at verses 9 and 10 and get to work. But rather, I pray that that would drive you to the cross of Jesus Christ, that you would fall at his feet and cry out for salvation and be made clean. For those Christians who are living a square peg life in Corinth, and for those of us who maybe find ourselves in that category, that that what we profess to believe doesn't add up to the way we actually live our lives, Paul reminds us of who we were and who we are in Christ. I love, love, love verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. Paul says, some of you were sexually promiscuous. Some of you were greedy for gain. Some of you were finding your identity at the bottom of a bottle. Some of you guys can relate to this. All right, that's your story. That's your testimony. You got up here and shared what God did in your life. It sounded a lot like verses 9 and 10. Isn't the grace of God scandalous that Paul could use the word were there, a past tense type of language about you, that that's not your identity anymore, that your identity is in Jesus Christ right now if you're a Christian? That's scandalous that God doesn't leave you in verses 9 and 10. He says that's not the present chapter of your life anymore. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, that God did something, that he looked upon your pitiable state in verses 9 and 10, and he reached down and he breathed life into your dead, lifeless soul, Paul's saying. He says you were washed, that if you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the filthiness of sin. That is amazing. Like, do you ever find yourself replaying like a film in your mind things that you've done in the past that just make you feel dirty and filthy in the end? That when God looks at you, he doesn't see that. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son robing you. That is unbelievable. Our daughter's name is Lanier, Jane, and, and there are a few reasons for that. We lived in Florida. We thought we'd never... I uh, end up back in Georgia again, and Lake Lanier and some other things sounded cool, you know, rooted us back to where we grew up. And uh, but there's also kind of this component, and not to get uh, over-symbolic, but the, word, the name Lanier means wool worker. And uh, everyone else thought I was stupid when I, you know, started to try to connect the dots there. Probably I am a little bit, but, uh, you know, you get sentimental when you're having a kid. And, and so uh, I just kind of started to envision, yeah, wool worker. Man, I want my daughter to be amongst the sheep. That sounds great to me. And, 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 then, I, and then I came across this verse in Isaiah 118, and, and it just communicates everything that Paul's saying in verse 11 when he says, he washed you. Isaiah 118, I'll put it up on the screen, says this. Come now, this is God speaking. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're a Christian, when God looks at you, he doesn't see sin's crimson stain. He sees you white as snow, white as wool, pure in his eyes. In the language of a mirror, when God looks at you, he doesn't see one single streak. Paul says you were sanctified. That if you're in Christ, you've been set apart. In, in light of the fact that you've been made clean, God has a purpose for your life. Don't waste it. Don't squander it with square peg living. Rather, ask God how you can be spent for his glory. Maybe that's a prayer for some of us this morning. We see those words, you were sanctified, you were set apart. Maybe the question for us this morning is to approach God in prayer and say, how do you want to spend me for your glory? What does it mean that you've set me apart? You've washed me clean. Use me, God. If there's anything in my life that communicates square peg living in light of a round circle worldview, do something about it so that I can make much of you and find greater joy in doing so. And lastly, he says, you were justified that if you're in Christ, again, that's courtroom language, you've been acquitted of all of your crimes, past, present, and future. That's unbelievable. That not one of those crimes on the list in verses nine and 10 can condemn you. Not one single one. That Jesus was unjustly pronounced guilty so that you and I could go free. That Paul's saying, you're free. The cross, the cross, the cross is what defines you. When God looks at you, he sees his beloved son or daughter in whom he's well Please, can you envision God pronouncing that upon you? You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because you did anything? No, not remotely, but because Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. He lived the life that you and I couldn't live, and he died our death. That is absolutely scandalous. 
that kind of truth is what awakens the hearts of Christians to, to live uh, consistent, round whole lives that actually match more so to what they profess to believe. And that kind of truth is what awakens the hearts of non-Christians to the unfathomable love of God. My prayer for this church, for our church, is not that we would be perfect, because I don't believe that's possible this side of heaven, until Aslan returns. My prayer is not that this church would be perfect, but rather would be humble, would be repentant, and would be awestruck by the grace of God. That's my prayer. And that this unbelieving community, whether they be religious lost who are seeking to earn it, or irreligious lost who are just running far from God, that they would look in and would be compelled to consider the scandalous cross of Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to take communion, and this is for uh, the Christians in the room. First uh, Corinthians 11, we'll eventually get there in this series, says the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We, we take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian in the room, as we prepare to take communion, sit with these questions. Let me just lay them out. Number one, are you defrauding your brothers or sisters in Christ? treating them unjustly, others within the church, maybe even others within your own community group. Are you a victimizer in the church? Might be another way that we could say it, a church bully. Number two, when others treat you unjustly, do you handle it in a way that authenticates the corporate witness of the church? Or do you handle it in a way that brings disgrace upon the church? Might God be calling you to lose for his glory in some way? Number three, do you allow the world to define truth and success and happiness for you? Or do you allow God to define that? Do you allow Jesus to define those things for you? Number four, does your life establish or destroy the credibility of the gospel? Very simply put, again, not perfection, but is there a great inconsistency that the world looks in and says, I don't like your toy? Number five, do you proclaim to yourself often the truth that you've been made clean, that you've been set apart? You've been declared innocent in Christ. That's what we mean when we say preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. We mean reminding yourself of the realities of what Christ has done for you and who he is because we believe that actually compels you toward this kind of life that paints a picture for the the onlooking world of who Jesus really is and what he's done. And if you're not a Christian, my prayer for you is super, super simple this morning. Pray that you would look in the proverbial mirror and experience a deep longing to be made clean and that that would drive you to the water, to Jesus Christ himself, who loves to make people clean. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.